Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Christiane Bird's latest book, A Block in Time, A New York City History at the Corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street, tells the story of New York City and the evolution of Manhattan from the 17th century to today through the prism of that single city block and the lives of the people who've lived and worked there. It's a story of forests and cement, bird cries and taxi horns, Native Americans and Europeans, farmhouses and hotels, gambling dens and bordellos, theaters and restaurants, publishing houses and dress shops, toys and gourmet foods. Her book is published by Bloomsbury, and it brings Christiane Bird to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. You've written six books that range in subject matter from the music world to the Middle East, but you write that the germ of this uh, of the idea behind this book first came to you 25 years ago when you took a graduate course in urban history at Columbia University with New York City historian Kenneth Jackson and wrote your master's thesis on New York's Tenderloin District. What got you thinking about it again and, and led to your decision to focus on a single block? Well, I never really forgot about it. You know, the Tenderloin was this astonishing area where it was a mix of high life and low life and um it was a notorious red light district and also an entertainment district. There were wealthy people and uh, aristocrats, prostitutes, con men, all sorts of characters. That, so when I, after writing that thesis, I never really forgot about it. Um, but at that, for a number of years, I was were, uh, working on books about the Middle East and I was doing a lot of traveling. And then I had kids and that cemented my residence here in New York more than ever, and I was searching for a book idea, and I remembered the Tenderloin and how intrigued I had been by it and how I'd never really forgotten about it. So that led me to writing about it. And did you realize at the start that it was going to turn out to be so complicated? Uh, not at all, not at all. I mean, I think that's one of the wonders of writing a book is you really don't know what kind of territory you're heading into. You have a vague idea of, of some of the major themes and the people that you want to write about, but I had no idea there were so many interesting stories. And I really have the feeling that I've only uncovered a handful of them. There's mm. probably many, many more that are locked away in, in, in maybe in records, but maybe forgotten forever. I just, it's astonishing how many people lived on the block who had these incredible stories. New York's first known people were the Paleo-Indians, the uh, a nomadic people. But then their descendants were the Lenny Len Lenape, who were called the real people or the original people. And they're the oldest of the Northeast and Algonquin Indian cultures? Yes, that's, that's correct. And they were living in the New York City area. Um, no one's really sure how many of the Lenape were actually in the area. Uh, estimates range from about... Um, 300 to 1,200, but there, of course there aren't really any records, so there's no indication of um, how many were in the area. They probably did not have any major presence on the um, island of Manhattan. They probably just used Manhattan for their hunting grounds and mm. uh, fishing grounds. Um, there are a few settlements that have been found scattered uh, uh, across the island, none actually on the block that I write about. But doesn't the name Manhattan come from their language, a Muncie word, yes. Manahata? Yes, it does. No one's really, the Muncie language died out a long time ago, and no one's really sure exactly what it meant, but it could have meant island of many hills or cluster of islands with channels everywhere. Someone's also uh, suggested that perhaps it meant place where timber is procured for bows and arrows. So hmm. uh, no one's really sure, but it does come from the Muncie language. Well, although you focus on a single block in Manhattan, Lenape Hoking, the land of the Lenny Lenape, stretched from western Connecticut to Delaware and included most of New Jersey and southeastern New York. Don't many of today's place names derive from them? Catskills, Wappingers, Aesopus, Canarsie, Raritan, Hackensack, Tepan, Rockaway, Matitacock, Massapequa, Merrick, Wow. Yeah, all those names come from the Lenape. Kind of incredible to think of that. And they represented various groups? Yeah, they were various subgroups of the Lenape. You write that when the early Dutch settlers arrived in Manahata, they wrote of woods so filled with birds that men can scarcely go through them for the whistling, the noise, and the chattering of, of bays swarming with fish, 
both large and small whales, tunnies, or tunies, I guess, and porpoises, of foxes in abundance, multitudes of wolves, wildcats, squirrels, beavers in great numbers, minks, otters, polecats, bears, and of tall grasses, towering trees, pears larger than a man's fist, wild turkeys so big and numerous that they shut out the sunshine and oysters a foot long. Uh, I guess uh, that was a good reason for them to want to stay here. Yeah, I love reading about those early days. It must have been just incredible here. It's so hard to imagine it now that we're all concrete and tall buildings, but it just sounded like a paradise from their descriptions. Well, you can only wonder who, what, what animals were here even before. Haven't the remains of woolly mammoths been found on Manhattan? Yes, they, yeah, uh, they, um, well, actually, it's the, um, the mastodons that were uh, inhabiting mm-hmm. this, this part of the continent. And at one time, uh, many, some scientists believe that there were as many mastodons in this area as, as there are deer today, which is another astonishing idea to imagine. Mm-hmm. D- don't landscape ecologists believe that in the 200 years before Henry Hudson arrived in 1609, that 80 to 90% of Manhattan was deliberately set on fire with the middle era, including the block that you have written about burned between two and 10 times? Why was, why was it set on fire? Well, they, they cut down the under, the, the fire would just burn the undergrowth the, and the, uh, the taller trees were still remaining. So they burned down the undergrowth to make it easier to hunt. And then when the wild berries and uh, roots grew back, then they, they made it easier for them to pass through. Also easier to, to chase deer or whatever other um, animals they might be pursuing. Uh, how did the English explorer Henry Hudson come to work for the Dutch East Company? And and how did he wind up finding him, landing in Manhattan when he, when he was trying to go to India? Well, he 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 was trying to find a passage to passage to India. He didn't know really know where he was going, right? So mm-hmm. he headed this way. He thought the Hudson River would lead him to India, but of course it didn't. And um, and uh, he ended up just uh, going up the Hudson River as far as he could, and then being forced to turn around. So. Um, and it was after it was after his explorations actually that the West India Company was established and started to um, send over settlers and uh, explore the riches of of Manhattan and the surrounding area. Of course, one of their primary uh, interests in that time was the beaver. They were very mm-hmm. interested in obtaining beaver pelts. Uh, that wearing beaver hats and beaver coats were very much the fashion of the day, and the old uh, Treasure troves of beavers in Russia and other other areas had been um, pretty much eradicated by then. So they came here and made a fortune at first, buying beaver pelts from the Lenape and the Algonquin Indians in the area. And they, uh, well, there's also minks. I guess a mink wasn't as va- considered as valuable then. Beaver was the big thing. But- beaver was definitely the big thing, right. How, was the big thing. how much changed when the first Europeans arrived in the early 17th century? What were their relations with the Lenapes like? Well, in you know, in the, the first couple of decades, things weren't were fairly friendly. The Lenape were helping the the Dutch, and and um, there was a lot of cooperation between them. They were uh, in uh, Fort Amsterdam, which was of course the settlement at, at the at the foot of Manhattan. Um, and they were acting as guides. There was some uh, cohabitation um, between men and women. Um, well, you mean European take, men and, and uh, local yes, women, Lenape yes, women. Right, right. But it didn't take long, unfortunately, because before all sorts of tensions arose. I mean, the, um, the Lenape uh, uh, objected to the Europeans cutting down their forests and the the um, Europeans objected to the Lenape letting, uh, using their, um, trying to use their lands as hunting grounds. And then there was issues regarding the planting of crops and the uh, roaming of wild animals. And so before long, it really didn't take long at all before a lot of um, uh, antagonism arose between the two groups. And the real turning point was um, when the Director General Willem Kieft arrived from, Inc., from, from Amsterdam and he was very much uh, against granting the Lenape many rights. And one thing he said was that they had to pay tax. They had to pay taxes to the West India Company for the for the right to be protected. And of course, the Lenape 
were outraged by that idea. This was their land. Why should they be paying taxes to the Dutch? So um, that was kind of the beginning of a lot of increased tension between them. And then at one point, there was a um, Dutch merchant who lived on the what is now the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He was beheaded by a Lenape brave. The Europeans thought it was there was no reason for this attack to have taken place, but the Lenape had been um, attacked, a band of them that had been attacked a decade earlier, and the, the brave who beheaded the Dutchman, Klaus um, Swit, his family had, his parents and um, had been uh, killed in this raid. So after that happened, Willem Kieft really declared war on the Lenape, and it was one, one atrocity after another in attempts to drive them out of the region. Did it all change a bit when Peter Minwit purchased Manhattan? Although uh, I gather the what I was taught in school, that he bought it for $24 worth of trinkets, is not really what happened. It was 60 guilders. How much was that really worth? Yeah. Well, you know, it's very hard to assess what that's worth, you know, because we might think of it as $24 worth of trinkets today, but it's very hard to know how much some of those iron tools, the hatchets and things like that were worth back then. They were worth a lot more because the Lenape didn't have them. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to put any sort of modern uh, value on on the exchange. And it wasn't unlike other uh, exchanges that were taking place in North America between the Europeans and the Lenape. Yeah, so by the time Peter... Minuet arrived. Um, the war, he 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 came in the wake of of the war between the uh, European between the Dutch and the Lenape. So by the time he got here, the Lenape population was much diminished. Um, and he set about um, basically uh, modernizing what a little bit of the settlement had been there. He you know we uh, organized streets and that kind of thing and started putting more of a European taste uh, stamp on things. And people started arriving from all over, both free and enslaved Africans and biracial peoples were part of New Amsterdam from the start. Also, didn't it become a refuge for Jews and French Huguenots who were persecuted in Europe? Yeah. You know, one of the most interesting things um, when I started researching this book was finding out about the uh, African-Americans and biracial people who were here very early on. Um, One of the very first non-Europeans to arrive and settle on the island was a man named uh, Jan Rodriguez, who came from the Dominican Republic, what's now the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. He um, He was a biracial man, and he had been set ashore in 1613, following a mutiny on one of the on the boat he was on and he took up residence here and he farmed and he learned the Lenape languages so when the Europeans started arriving in, in greater numbers he served as a uh, interpreter and then the very first slaves arrived in 1626 was all which was also the year that Peter Minuet arrived and there were 11 of them um, and they, uh, they arrived, they were all men, and then a few years later, uh, a number of women arrived. And one of the first men to arrive in 1626 was actually the father of the first man who owned the block that I write about. Peter Santomi. Yes, yes. The, um, first, the father of the first owner of the 20, uh, of the, that, that block, what, what became 23rd Street block. Exactly. That exactly. you're writing about. And, yeah, and it was, it was interesting because... About 18 years after that first boatload of uh, 11 slaves arrived, they went to the um, they went to Willem Keith and they said, "We've been working for you long enough. It's been 18 years. We want our freedom." Um, which seems like how could they possibly succeed in that request today? What? Um, but to their surprise, Willem Keith did grant their um, freedom under cert- certain conditions that became known as half freedom. They had to give a certain tribute to the West India Company every year. They had to promise their services to the company if they were needed. Um, both of those two measures weren't unlike what the white uh, employees of the West India Company were also uh, tasked with doing. And then the third thing was that the half-freed slaves, had their children were to remain slaves. And, of course, that was 
something that they didn't want to accept, and it's unclear how much it was carried out. But anyway, they, these 11 slaves were indeed granted half freedom, and um, it wasn't as a, as quite as altruistic as it sounds because the land that they were granted uh, land and their farms were in areas that were um, north of the white settlement, so they added protection against any Indian uh, attacks that might come, and their crops also provided um, income for the West India Company. So it wasn't certainly wasn't an altruistic gesture on their part. Also, it meant that the West India Company no longer had to take care of the, old, the slaves as they grew older. Um, but it was interesting that this that this took place at that time, um, and it by the time that uh, Pietras, uh Salome's son was born. He was uh, he and another group. He and the, he and the next generation of um, half half slave freed slaves were granted full full freedom. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Christiane Bird, whose latest book is A Block in Time, a New York City history at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street, published by Bloomsbury. Um, I guess Peter Stuyvesant uh, is an issue here. Uh, he, uh, he may have been New Amsterdam's largest slaveholder, but didn't he also free some slaves, including Solomon Peters? He did. He, he was a. He was really a man of contradictions. Before he arrived, slavery wasn't a widespread at all in, in the New Amsterdam and New Netherland uh, colony. In fact, the, some of the early Dutch settlers really had some issues with the idea of owning their fellow human beings. But um, Stuyvesant had the completely opposite approach, and it was under him that the slave trade became a major part of the city. Um, and the slave population grew exponentially. Um, slave trips, st- slave ships started arriving in port. It was a very high population, the highest in North America of slaves during, under his reign. But then, you know, when when the um, English came, um, these the the half the, some of these half freed slaves, this group of half freed slaves, went to Stuyvesant and they said, "Well, we have our half freedom." Um, we are about to be come under English rule, and we would like our full freedom. And he granted it. It was one of his last, one of his later acts as a director general of New Amsterdam. And uh, one of the, an example of that was Solomon Peters, who was awarded the largest land grant ever given to a black man, 30 acres, in 1680, uh, which is, I guess, what, about uh, 16 years after the British arrived. Uh, was that on the land that's the subject of your book? Uh, yes, it is. Um, he was, um, Solomon Peters was uh, a well-educated man. He probably went to the school run by the Dutch Reformed Church. And he became, um, he, he worked for one of the early British governors of uh, New York, um, Sir Edmund Andros. And um he must have been highly regarded by Andros because it was Andros who granted him that land um, in 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 sixteen eighty. Yeah, he had a brother. The family was very very had high standing. The, he had a brother who was also a well known surgeon in hmm. in the colony at the time. Is Peter Stuyvesant's wooden leg relevant to the story, or should we move on? <laughs> Uh, it's not that relevant. <laughs> not really. <laughs> so British King Charles II decided to seize New Amsterdam. And on August 27, 1664, British warships arrived. And a month later, Stuyvesant surrendered New Amsterdam. Um, how soon after that was it renamed New York? I think pretty much right afterwards, as far as I know. Um was named after the Duke of York. Why he, the Duke of York of all people? I'm not really sure. <laughs> that was um, outside the <clears throat> parameters of my book, but it was right after right after the uh, British took over in 1664 that that took place. Interestingly, Peter Stuyvesant didn't go back to the Netherlands. He retired to a farm on the Bowery. What is, in fact, it was called the Bowery then, wasn't it? Yes, that's correct. 
<clears throat> and uh, many of the um, of the freed slaves were also granted land in that area. So uh, it was the center, actually, for the African-American so, uh, people at that time. So New York became, remained a British city uh, into the Revolution. During the American Revolution, General Sir William Howe's forces arrived on August 22, 1776, and uh, Manhattan remained in British hands for seven years um, until Cornwallis uh, surrendered to the Continental Army in Yorktown uh, on October 19, 1791. But the, then the British even remained for another two years. Yeah, well, it's, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Again, this is a little bit outside of what I write about, so I'm not sure exactly what the um, mm -hmm. arrangements were, but it took a long time after uh, the end of the war before it actually went into um, the... Before, before the British actually left the city. <laughs> the block you write about once lay far north of the settled city. When did it become its epicenter? Um, that was really in the 1800s. Uh, it, in 1850, it was still um, on the, I wouldn't say the outskirts, but it was still outside of the main part of settled New York because um, it was around that time that people started moving into the area. In 1850, the block was only partially settled. There were brick buildings along the 6th Avenue side. There was a lumber yard on the, on the 23rd Street side. There was a uh, post tavern uh, and stagecoach stop on the 5th Avenue side. But it was, it was just ordinary people living here. A lot of the lots were empty um, and there were farms, a lot of truck farms in the area. And what was astonishing to me in writing this book was how quickly change came about. Because in the 1850s, these were ordinary people living lives in a area that was removed from the very center of the city. But already by 1860, one decade later, the block between 23rd, between 5th and 6th Avenue on 23rd Street was regarded as one of the finest blocks in the city. A lot of wealthy people moved into the city, onto the block at that time, and it was very highly uh, sought after real estate. In, in the state of 10 years, that change took place. But it became a block much earlier. Uh, what were the circumstances that led John Randall Jr., uh, a, a surveyor, to spend three years making measurements and, and pounding 1,600 bolts and markers into the ground in order to create the 1811 grid that formed the basis for the current layout of Manhattan streets? Well, yes, yes, it did become a, a block much earlier. Um, at that time, in the, in the early 1800s, it was people began to realize that the chaos of Lower Manhattan uh, was holding the city back, and that there had some urban planning had to be done. With the city couldn't grow uh, and be um, and and couldn't grow, flourish if it continued to be as chaotic as it was in, in, on the streets in those early years. So they had this idea that they would carve uh, the, the land up into blocks and, and set up streets and avenues and that sort of thing. And there was a lot of discussion for years about how this would be done. Um, and according to legend, these, some of this, uh, well, first, first there was a committee set up that was supposed to study how this, the best way to do this. And according to legend, they were in what is now Madison Square and they saw a grid that um, uh, some workers were using to sift sand and they saw the the, uh, the lines of the grid lined up so that there were um, wide spaces between the um, uh, squares heading north and south and narrower ones heading east and west. And that was kind of their uh, inspiration for setting up the grid pattern that we have in New York today. Although grid patterns had existed in other cities too, it was just the idea of the wide avenues and the narrow streets that was new. Um, so. It took a long time for this for surveyor John Randall to cover the whole island and to figure out exactly where all these streets and avenues would run. So it took many years for him to he traipsed the island from north to south, east to west, setting up markers. He had his own system um, for uh, measuring and for recording. Um, and at that time, he gave each of the blocks a different name and the block 
that I write about was labeled block number 825, which continues to be its name today. Well, wasn't 23rd Street designated in that commissioner's plan as one of 15 east-west streets that would be 100 feet in width as opposed to some minor streets that were designated as 60 feet wide? Why 23rd Street? Was it already considered a main road? No, not really. It was it was more that um, that they were at certain intervals, you know, the, and um, the city had already been um, settled much farther south than that. And they decided to set these up at, at uh, 10 block intervals. Um, 23rd Street wasn't so much of a, a major thoroughfare at that time. What was a major thoroughfare was the Bloomingdale Road, which had been established uh, around the time that um, it was around 1700, I believe, when, when the, um, the uh, African-American family no longer owned land on the block. That had been set up running what is now along, what is now known as Broadway today, running from 23rd Street mm-hmm. farther north. Well, it was, uh, it was considered an important area, right? Because uh, the plan also reserved uh, the 240 acres of land bounded by 23rd Street, 3rd Avenue, 33rd Street, and 7th Avenue as the Grand Parade. Right. Well, prior, prior to that, there, um, there, the area had been known as the Common Grounds, um, where uh, uh, people would come and graze their animals, people leaving, living further south. So initially, the, the idea was that there would be this huge Grand Parade where Madison Square and, um, my, as, you, as you mentioned, reaching over to 7th Avenue and 3rd Avenue, where uh, it would be set off as the center of the city, and not on this grid pattern. But within a short period of time, that got uh, made into a much smaller area until it ended up being what Madison Square is today. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Conversation with Christiane Bird. Well, if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, A Block in Time, a New York City History at the Corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street. To do that, you just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or call 212. 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. That's two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty during today's show, and and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that seventy five dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. Um, now, the you write about a number of notable figures in the story of Twenty Third Street. Perhaps we can talk about some of them. For example, real estate tycoon. Amos Eno. Yes, I think he was a fascinating character. He was originally from New England, and he uh, was a son of well-to-do farmers in the Simsbury area of Connecticut. And he uh, started up a dry goods store there. Um, It was very small at first, but he was a man who kept his eyes open and noticed trends. And there was a building of a canal in the area at that time, and he positioned his dry goods stores near the, the near the area where the canal was being built, and it proved to be a huge success. And so, a few years later, he moved to New York with um, one of his cousins, and they started up a dry goods store in um, in Manhattan. Um, but his his primary interest was uh, real estate, and he kept his eyes and ears open and began buying up real estate and was so successful at it that um, by the 1850s, he had left 
the dry good, goods business to be um, a real estate mogul, basically. Um, he bought up land in many areas of the city, and he was very, very successful at it. He seemed to anticipate trends before they happened. And when he bought the land that would become the Fifth Avenue Hotel and started building the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which is, was on the uh, on the southeast southeast corner of the block. At um, Fifth Avenue, yeah. Of, yes, Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street, right on the yeah. corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd. Uh, people called it Eno's Folly. They said, that's way too mm-hmm. far uptown. No one's going to go uptown to stay in a hotel that far north. There were, a lot of the streets were still muddy at that time. There, uh, the heart of the city was farther downtown. Everyone was predicting its immediate demise. But... He believed in his plan and he built the hotel. And one year after the hotel opened, it was book solid. So uh, it was the largest hotel in the world at the time, wasn't it? Six it was. story high structure designed to accommodate 800 guests. And uh, it even served as the headquarters of the Republican Party at, at one point. It was for quite a while, actually. It was the headquarters from shortly after the time of the world, right at the time of the Civil War, up until the, up until the, um, hotel was torn down in, in the early 1900s. I'm at the head of the Republican Party here in New York, not overall, but here in New York. Well, the, the, we're talking about different presidents than Donald Trump. This was not the Trump Hotel. This was, uh, this was presidents, Ulysses S. Grant, Trester, Alan Arthur, uh, used it as their headquarters? Yes, they did. And um, uh, President Lincoln stayed at the, at the hotel. He uh, gave a the speech there that preceded the speech that he gave at Cooper Union that led to his presidency. Um, Theodore Roosevelt was nominated hmm. to be governor of New York at the hotel. It was a re- it was a real center of power for the Republican Party. And yes, it was a totally different party than um, that that we than we have now. Um, and it was at the uh, at the Fifth Avenue Hotel that a lot of wealthy Republicans gathered at the start of the Civil War, uh, and they established the Union League Club to support the Union Army there. So there was, there was a lot of um, political activity happening in the, in the hotel from its earliest years. Another prominent visitor was the Prince of Wales, Edward VII, who visited the hotel in 1860. Yes, that was That a had a real impact, didn't it? It had a real impact. It was a very interesting episode. Um, it was a year after the hotel had opened, um, and it was the first time a royal had visited the United States, which the Queen of England at the time was horrified by. Um, he was Prince of Wales was quite young at that time, 17 or 18, um, and the whole city turned out to welcome him. He landed in New York Harbor, and the estimates are that a fourth of the city population lined Broadway and other streets to catch a glimpse of him. Um, there were endless festivities planned in his honor, one of which was a dance at the Academy of Music that everyone wanted to be invited to. Hmm. That was basically more of a concert hall. So they covered the seats with a floor, a makeshift floor, and the society men sent out invitations to a very limited and elite group of people. And uh, on the day of of uh, of the great event, the Prince had no long, no sooner arrived than the floor collapsed, and <laughs> some of the vases and the flowers broke, and the ladies were uh, one of the ladies fainted, and the prince was whisked off so that they had time to repair the floor, and then the, the dance resumed, um, and many of the ladies were it, it, very intent on dancing with the prince, and rumor had it that he was covered with black and blue spots after the after the dance was over um but he didn't seem to mind and um he spent his his week or so here in new york at the fifth avenue hotel stories also had it that he played leapfrog in the halls and that he may have slipped over to the sixth avenue side of the block where there were brothels and gambling dens um but there's no actual proof of that but he may have done that um Mm -hmm. and it was also at the fifth avenue hotel that he experienced his first uh, encounter with shampoo, a shampoo. That was a new concept at the time, it was a new word in the English language. Before that, it, it had been, um, it was taken from the Turkish language, meaning uh, 
to massage. Uh, and the idea of washing one's hair on a regular basis was not something that was widespread then. And they called in the hairdresser and he gave the prince a shampoo and the prince was reportedly delighted with the event, and he decided to continue the practice when he returned to England. He also uh, made uh, increased the commercial appeal of the adjacent neighborhood, um, the fact that he was there. I guess it's, there was a certain kind of snob appeal. Um, some of the other people um, who we associate with the area uh, are, have mixed stories. For example, financier James Jubilee Jim Fisk. He was a robber baron. Uh, yeah, he was a yeah. He was not such a scrupulous fellow. He um, he was up to all sorts of shenanigans. He started out as a peddler in New England and was incredibly successful. So much so that he got noticed by the head of uh, the department store, Jordan Marsh, who hired him um, as a salesperson. And then after the uh, the start of the um, Civil War, he went down to Washington. Um, and set up headquarters there and probably sm and definitely smuggled cotton through the um, north-south lines. was very good at hawking various merchandise from the Jordan um, Marsh uh, department store and ended up making a lot of money coming to New York, decided he wanted to be a stockbroker, uh, set up an office in the Wall Street area uh, and basically immediately failed because he didn't know anything about what he was doing. Hmm. Um, but <laughs> he uh, he took up residence in the Fifth Avenue Hotel as well, which was very common at that time. There weren't enough apartment buildings in New York. So many people did settle in hotels, wealthier people in hotels such as the Fifth Avenue and uh, middle class and working class people in boarding house situations. And he played a role in Black Friday, later was murdered by a business associate. That's that's correct. He um. He and uh, Jay Gould tried to corner the gold market in, in the United States and um, caused a, what was known as Black Friday crash, gold crash on Wall Street, uh, which led to brokerage houses and other businesses going out of business, various people committing suicide. But he and Gould uh, probably got away with a small fortune. Um, they always seemed to come... He, Fisk always seemed to come out on top, no, no matter what he was up to. Um, and but even though he, he and he was an outrageous personality, he was gregarious, full of himself, always telling jokes, just always the center of attention with a beautiful woman on one arm and, and an entourage trailing behind him. Um, but despite all his his corruption and his his um, the way he played on people and took advantage of people, he also had a lot of fans. He, people regarded him as a man of humble beginnings who had made it in, in made it in, in incredible success out of his life. And they, uh, they honored him in a lot of ways, despite all that he had done. Another person, uh, well, whose name met, most people will recognize is associated with the area, the architect Stanford White, who designed many houses for the rich and even the Washington Square Arch. But He's probably best known for having kept a love nest on the block, which led to his demise. Yes. Well, it's um, it's an incredible story. It's it's a tragic story, really. I, I think uh, probably one that many, many people are familiar with. I mean, he was a highly talented man, uh, incredible architect, collector of fine art, um, uh had a lot of friends. McKim, Mead, and White, wasn't that the company? Yes, yes, and just just gorgeous buildings erected all over the city. Um, but then he had this other side to him. He preyed on young women. And um, even though he, he was also devoted to his family in his own way, but he had uh, one young woman lover after another. And one of his love nests, I think it was only one of them, was on the block, and, and that was the most famous because he um, seduced a young act actress named Evelyn Nesbitt. And um, she, she was 16 years old and she was, had had a hard upbringing and she was overwhelmed by his fame, his generosity. And uh, they were involved for a, a time, but he had other things uh, in his life. He was married and he had other women. And so 
She started entertaining other suitors, including a man named Harry Thaw, who had severe mental problems. And Thaw was a very wealthy uh, Pittsburgh businessman who was very jealous of White uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but one of which was that White had been um, Evelyn Nesbitt's lover, and he was courting Nesbitt. Um, and um, the upshot was that he assassinated White in the, in the Madison, first Madison Square Garden, which was in Madison Square mm -hmm. um, at the theater one night, and he assassinated him. And uh, the love nest where the notorious red velvet swing was where Evelyn Nesbitt, uh, uh, he had her swing on, the, on it at, um, in, went during her visits. There have been uh, any number of was, Madison Square Gardens over the years. Obviously, uh, the, the current one is far from 23rd Street, but that was the, f the first one. That was the first. Well, yes, it was the first. And then um, there... The, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, actually, there, there had been one prior to that, but Stanford White was the one who really turned it into the first Madison Square Garden that we know of today. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Christiane Bird, whose latest book is A Block in Time, A New York City History of at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street, published by Bloomsbury. Um, there's uh, Marietta Stevens, a social climber who amassed a fortune sufficient to have made her the model for Mrs. Lemuel Struthers in Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Yes, Marietta Stevens is one of my favorite characters in the book. I think she was an astonishing woman. She was brash, outspoken, opinionated. And famous quite, at the time. At, it, yes, but and pro probably quite, I'm, I was thinking probably quite nasty in a lot of ways, mm. but she was also way ahead of her time. She wasn't the sort of woman who would sit back and be demure and polite. She went after what she wanted and she got it. Um, she was the son, I mean the son, the, um, the wife of the hotel manager, Perrin Stevens, and she had a big hand in the business operations of the hotel, but she wasn't so much interested in business as she was interested in climbing the social hierarchy of old New York. She wanted to be led in to the aristocratic circles of the Shermer Horns and the, the Joneses, which were um, Edith Wharton's family. And she used her wiles and, and eventually got there. She hosted uh, Sunday evening musicals. At that time, Sunday evenings were considered sacrosanct. They were the sort of things, sort of uh, period when people were supposed to stay home and be religious and be with their family. But she sensed that the, a lot of the um, high society men in, in New York were impatient with that. They wanted to go out and be in the town. So she started up these musicals, musical evenings, that started attracting a larger and larger uh, number of guests. At first, just the nouveau riche, but as time went by, uh, more old New York society families also started attending, or men started attending, and women, some women, but mostly men. Um, and she succeeded. That was her first uh, foray, a su successful foray. But the big change came when she brought her daughter out into society. Minnie, her, her daughter's name was Minnie, and she was uh, in the same, uh, a woman of, who, of the same spirit as her mother. And Marietta shopped her around to various wealthy families in New York, and that didn't work out the way she wanted to. So she took her over to England, and, and Minnie eventually married um, a man named um, Arthur Paget. And uh, with that, and Mr. Pa uh, Sir Paget was a good friend of the Prince of Wales, a friendship that um, Marietta Stevens helped to cultivate with her own, her Minnie's friendship with the uh, Prince of Wales as well. And the wedding ended up taking place in England and the, and the Prince of Wales congratulated the couple. And that helped catapult Marietta Stevens into high society in New York. No, and you, when at the, go ahead. Yeah. When she first came to New York, there were a lot of 
people gossiped about her all the time. They said mm-hmm. she was a... She, she was received a, an obituary, which was rare in New York those days in New York newspapers. So she had to be exactly. pretty famous. You also write about the memorable grifters, drifters, and other lowlier denizens of the block. But um, one of the more uh, interesting or upsetting characters uh, is uh, a policeman, Anthony Clubber Comstock. Yeah, Anthony Clubber Williams. Yes, he was. He was. Um, he was a dangerous man. He um, he got his nickname because at that time policemen used um, uh, locust sticks to uh, hit criminals and various people they accused of breaking the law. And these were these were very dangerous instruments. They caused quite a few deaths. And but he was held in high esteem for his ability to keep law and order. Um, and when he came to the block, he had been, uh, he, he decided, he had come from a downtown, um, a rough neighborhood downtown, and he came to the 29th precinct, which included the block. And he said, now I've been eating, before this, I've been eating chuck steak, and now I'm going to get myself some of the tenderloin. Mm. And that was, he was referring to the uh, enormous amount of graft that was taking place in the district. And he gained control of, of a lot of the operations. Um, he would uh, shake down the, the various prostitutes and conmen and gambling houses that were in the Tenderloin district and earned an enormous amount of um, uh, under the table income that way, amassed a fortune really for the time, had houses in Connecticut, had a boat, um, all really gotten under ill, um, ill-gotten ill gains, really. Well, we don't have a lot more time, but I wanted to touch upon more recent history. Uh, by the second decade of the 20th century, Manhattan had moved further uptown. The block had lost its centrality, and uh, the mansions, boarding house, and Fifth Avenue Hotel were gone. What replaced them? They were um, office and loft buildings, uh, Another incredible change that happened so quickly was after being the center of high society and all sorts of um, nighttime activities, the block became a commercial district. There were uh, shirt shirt waste factories. There were china shops. There were a lot of wholesale um, ventures on the block. It was an overnight transition. The residential buildings were more or less gone, and now it was a center for commerce. One of the first jobs I ever had was when I was in high school was as a delivery boy for a, a company called All Languages Typewriter Company, and that was down the block, a little further down 23rd Street. Uh, but there was also the School of Visual Arts uh, down the block. So um, it was still lively. Uh, and then again, the block really suffered during the 70s and early 1980s when New York City had a financial crisis. Yes, it did. And and there were a lot of homeless people in the area at that time. There were people that would sleep overnight in the Madison Square Park. There were a number of welfare hotels not that far away, mostly clustered around Madison Avenue and um, a little further north. But um, one of the one of the welfare hotels was the St. Omar's Hotel, which was actually on the block. Um, and there were um, murders that were committed at that hotel and there were um, at one point it was taking in homeless families but then the city inspected it and said it was so run down that it wasn't even uh, serviceable as a welfare hotel so it was a rough time for the block that that period well hasn't the block rebounded in the past couple of years what's led to that absolutely absolutely it's re- it's a center once again really Madison Square is is a beautiful area it's completely renovated and and lots of art art gatherings and various other activities going on there and of course Shake Shack is in the middle um, and the, it's the area is teeming it's completely different than it was in the 1980s and do we have any idea of why? Is it just uh, the way the city keeps on changing? But it, yeah, it has to do with the change in the city. A lot of money came in, um, and a lot, and the population of the city has has exploded. Uh, the high tech um, companies moved in, um, a lot, and a lot of them were centered in, or have been centered in 
the Flatiron District, mm -hmm. which includes the Madison Square um, Park area. So, yeah, there's been a lot of change, increased tourism, all of that. And a lot of new building in the area. Yes, absolutely. And Some of those um, ugly, tall, skinny buildings. Yes. <laughs> made out yeah, of a lot, lot of, of glass. <laughs> a lot of change, yes. I want to thank you so much for being on our show. It's been uh, a fascinating way of looking at a city I thought I really knew well. <laughs> Discovered all sorts of interesting things in reading your book, and we couldn't get to all of them. Uh, the book is A Block in Time, A New York City History at the Corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street. It is Christiane Bird's sixth book, is it? Yes, that's correct. Published mm -hmm. by Bloomsbury. It's What a great pleasure it's been having you on our show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by giving us a call at 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $75 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now can receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, A Block in Time, A New York City History at the Corner of Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street by Christiane Bird. So why not give us that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You also might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $15, $20, $25, $30, whatever you can feel comfortable with a month. It really allows us to plan for the future. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible contribution. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Jason Pack, author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. We'll see you then.